Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, big labor drops millions on left-wing midterm candidates, far-left extremists harass Senator Ted Cruz, and a big-money-backed pro-abortion campaign demands that Twitter censor pro-lifers. Our first item comes from the left-leaning Center for Responsive Politics. Uh, Their data show that 12 of the top 25 identified organizational contributors to so-called outside spending groups for the 2018 midterm elections are labor unions, with the Carpenters and Joiners Union topping the list with $23.8 million in contributions, 97% to liberals in the left. Uh, First, some definitions. Outside spending groups are the organizations that spend money to influence elections without coordinating with the candidate's campaign, without calling up the campaign manager or the candidate and saying, hey, what messaging do you want me to use? Where do you, what TV stations do you want me to run ads on? They just put it out themselves. Any spending you make on those kind of, uh, on those kind of advertisements are known as independent expenditures because you're making them independently from the candidate that you are either uh, supporting or obviously the candidate you are attacking. In 2010, the Supreme Court in Citizens United v. FEC held that these independent expenditures were not uh, were not political contributions, but were in fact acts of speech. And because they're acts of speech, you can make these independent expenditures without limit. So why would unions be interested, to, to the extent certainly that they are, 12 of the top 25 organizational contributors, uh, in backing politicians and especially politicians on the left? Well, they get a number of favors for it. All unions want policies like monopoly bargaining, compulsory agency fees, and card check organizing that increase membership and dues collections, and the Democrats support all of these things. Government worker unions have an even more direct path to achieving achieving benefits from supporting politicians. Uh, If they get politicians that they support to be on the other side of the bargaining table, remember that when uh, the bus driver's union is negotiating with the transit authority, taxpayers aren't in that room. It's the bus driver's union and then politicians or their appointees for the transit company. And if the unions have elected the po- have spent heavy money to elect the politicians who appoint the guy who's going to negotiate with them, they're more likely to get more of what they want. And what they want is usually uh, increasing the total government spending on the program, and then obviously increasing the salaries and government worker benefits for the unionized government workers. What about private sector unions like the carpenters? In the case of construction unions, there's a very specific benefit. Under provisions of federal law, most notably the Davis-Bacon Act, there are rules that state the the wage level that government construction projects pay. And it should not surprise anyone because the law, the Davis-Bacon Act, came from the New Deal when uh, labor unions were in the ascendancy, that that wage level is the union wage level. So essentially, this forecloses government construction projects to non-union contractors, which means more jobs for union members. Other private sector union mem- uh, private sector unions can lobby to have decision makers that are likely to ag- agree with unions appointed to the National Labor Relations Board, which adjudicates private sector union management disputes, and then also to push for general left-wing economic policies. Uh, most prominently the $15 minimum wage, which would increase union negotiating power, union negotiating leverage, and uh, depending on how it was enacted, possibly even union membership. So how does all this spending work? Uh, Unions' national-level political activities, uh, state-level political activities are governed by state law, which vary widely. 
the national level political activities are all very expansive and all very left wing, all very left leaning. And you can classify the spending into three categories based on who funds it, how that funding is determined, and whether or not that funding is opt-in or opt-out. The most restrictive uh, bucket are the contributions to candidates. Those can only come from opt-in funds from union members that are then separately segregated and given to a political action committee. On the other hand, you have the least restrictive, which are the contributions by labor unions to political advocacy and lobbying groups. Uh, Unions spend heavily on contributions, on institutional support. Uh, They commission research reports from a number of left-wing organizations. Uh, Examples include the Economic Policy Institute, which is basically the labor union's think tank, Uh, the Center for American Progress Action Fund, which publishes the Think Progress propaganda blog we discussed a couple weeks ago. And then there's Working America, which is the AFL-CIO's in-house organizing and mobilization entity uh, aimed at workers who aren't unionized. For those kinds of contributions, the unions can use general treasury money. General treasury money is dues money. And also money from compelled agency fees in the 23 states that allow that force private sector employees who are not union members but are forced to be represented by a union to pay. There are some uh, limitations on what you can use forced agency fees for that were set by the Supreme Court, uh, but opting out of paying those, paying the full fee, uh, is onerous and sometimes aggressively discouraged. Another thing you can use dues money for is to advocate candidates and policies to union member households. That can be done with the general treasury. And what's a little more confusing are are the expenditures under discussion outside spending. Since Citizens United v. FEC, the Supreme Court ruling that held that independent expenditures were speech acts, uh, it is permitted for unions to use general treasury revenues, to use dues money rather than opt-in political funds for these independent expenditures. But it's hard to tell how often they do this versus using opt-in political funds. The reporting protocols to the Department of Labor and to the Federal Election Commission are, are somewhat ambiguous between what is a, an op, a contribution from the opt-in separate segregated fund and what is a contribution from the general treasury dues. What unions are doing in the 2018 elections are nothing new. Since Open Secret started collecting this data in the 1990 cycle, Six of the top 10 organizational contributors to federal politicians and federal political committees are national labor unions. Uh, Number one is the SCIU. The Carpenters, who have taken the lead in this cycle, uh, are number five. And over 90% of these partisan contributions at the federal level uh, are identified as going towards Democrats. Organizations that have looked at the dues-funded advocacy organization contributions find that they're even more liberal and even more left, uh, possibly as high as 99%. And there's a problem there because this conflicts with a substantial block of union families. If you look at exit polling, roughly 30 to 40 percent of union households, which is pollster speak for union members and their voting age uh, family members, consistently vote Republican. That puts them in a sort of Hobson's choice. You either give up full representation and your full participation in your workplace representation, uh, where you can't vote on the contract, you can't vote on your union negotiators because the unions have monopoly on representing workers, even if they're not union members, or pay, tough it out, pay the union dues, 
and that means that you're funding left-wing political interests that you're going to vote against every November. There have been some proposals to try to fix this, uh, the most notable probably the Employee Rights Act, which would treat spending on political advocacy more like candidate contributions and making it, op- making it opt-in rather than opt-out, uh, but none have been successful. Our second item uh, comes from Washington, D.C. A United States Senator Ted Cruz and his wife uh, had to leave a Capitol Hill restaurant after he was heckled by organized demonstrators aligned with the District of Columbia chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America and an alleged Antifa group calling itself Smash Racism D.C. For those not familiar, Antifa is a far-left extremist movement with no formal organizational structure, and it engages in this thing called, in this uh, style of demonstration called direct action, uh, which you can kind of classify as borderline legal, aggressive demonstrations, uh, sometimes involving violence, although not in this case, apparently. Antifa demonstrators, when often appear in public in masks, sometimes to avoid identification by any eyewitnesses or law enforcement, should they ultimately end up breaking the law. And as this incident demonstrates, despite claiming to exp- to oppose fascism, uh, Antifa and the Antifa-like groups uh, frequently threaten organizing activism in speech by mainstream conservatives like Senator Cruz. The other group that was involved, the Democratic Socialists of America, Uh, is another uh, radical pressure group, uh, this time on the far left of the Democratic Party. We, on this podcast, uh, in episode 32, we did a very in-depth analysis of the DSA, where it has come from, why it has risen uh, in influence and in power in recent years. And our third item, once again, comes from the world of big money pro-abortion advocacy. If you've been been on Twitter at all recently, you might have seen advertisements from a group called ReproAction, asking users to sign a petition to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey demanding that the platform censor pro-life content, most prominently an advertisement by Republican U.S. Senate candidate Marsha Blackburn touting her opposition to federal funding of Planned Parenthood amid allegations the group was selling fetal tissue, which can be legally dubious depending on how specifically it was organized. Turns out that ReproAction is a project of a pro-abortion megafunder we discussed last week, Neophilanthropy which also supports the Shout Your Abortion campaign, which was criticized for publishing an article which created the false impression that a woman who turned out to be pro-life was proud of having had three abortions by using a picture taken off Instagram without permission. The relationship between uh, neophilanthropy and reproaction and Shout Your Abortion is known in the, in the nonprofit trade as fiscal sponsorship. How fiscal sponsorship works is a new organization essentially borrows the tax-exempt status of a larger organization. And the larger organization... Uh, fiscally sponsors because the organization, the smaller organization, the new organization, shares its mission. And of course, like Shout Your Abortion, ReproAction hasn't entirely done its homework. Uh, conservative online news outlet Washington Free Beacon notes that a number of pro-life conservative Twitter users took to criticizing the organization's advertised tweets when they were placed before them. Now, more so than just we have a liberal pro-choice funder funding some pretty radical pro-choice advocacy again, There's something important about this pressure campaign. It comes amid an ongoing public debate over how much control these so-called internet platforms, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, that allow individual users to self-publish and distribute their own internet content, but on somebody else's platform, how much control, you know, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, etc., should exercise over what can be published. For the not entirely civic-minded reason that the 
company's executives and the company's workforces tend to be pretty strongly to the left, groups like neo-philanthropy are pressuring for really aggressive editorial censorship, essentially to turn Facebook or Twitter into the New York Times or the New York Times editorial section. Twitter this week released a proposal to ban what it is calling dehumanizing content. Give Twitter its due, there's likely good intentions to prevent the spread of vitriolic insults which make Twitter unpleasant to use. The company's stated examples of dehumanizing content in the blog post that they published announcing it are two examples of pretty obviously nasty insults. And Twitter has a financial incentive to keep Twitter conversations from devolving into insult matches. It's like a bar manager. You know, you can have your conversation, you can get heated, but once you start spewing conspiracy theories, once you start yelling and hollering at anyone who will listen, the bar manager might throw you out because you're making a scene and you people aren't having a good time and people aren't spending their money there anymore. Likewise, if Twitter's not pleasant to use, people are going to stop using it. And if they stop using it, they're not looking at ads. And if they're not looking at ads, Twitter isn't making any money. But while the intentions are good, there's a potential problem with the policy. Uh, and pressure groups like RepoAction are going to try to use it. They're going to try to exploit that the the latitude that something as broad as dehumanizing can create, uh, going well beyond the sort of obvious sort of obvious examples, I think stuff that you might might remember if you watched Hotel Rwanda, and into talk and into the belief that failure to adhere to a chapter and verse left-wing orthodoxy is itself dehumanized, even if it isn't dehumanizing in the sense that I think, Twitter intends, at least with its stated intentions. Given the political monoculture in Silicon Valley, there is a danger that non-left-wing views that are not facially dehumanizing will not be represented in making these determinations of what is, in fact, prohibited content, and that that will lead to censorship beyond what, again, I think Twitter is trying to do in just make Twitter a more pleasant service to use. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.